Welcome to All Road 65 Max Radio, where the road ahead gets brighter as we journey toward truth, traveling through our dreams and inspiration into a new reality. It's time, and your ticket is waiting. All aboard All Roads Lead 65 Max with Pamela Henderson. Greetings and thank you for joining me on BBS Radio, All Road 65 Max. I am your host, Pamela L. Henderson. My focus is my mission statement to help create a quality of life through social growth, inspiring jewels to become leaders by establishing partnerships with entrepreneurs, nonprofits, donors, sponsors, volunteers, corporations, the community and abroad. Please join me every other Tuesday at noon on BBS Radio, All Road 65 Max. My special guest today is Brian Belguas and David Tapascott, who takes us on a wild ride into the intense and lucrative world of class action litigation, where sex, money, and drugs are only part of the reward available for lawyers who are tough, and crafty enough to play in a league where shameless greed is sometimes rewarded, but where the personal and professional risks are as big as the dollar signs. This story is inspired by real life class action lawyers. At last, thank you for this interview chance, gentlemen, and welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> You're yeah, welcome. Thanks for having us. Uh, you're so welcome. So how is everyone doing? We have this bad weather and the storm and everything, and where, where everyone is located. So I'm located right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay, okay. I'm in New York City. Oh, and New York City is really getting hit hard, huh? Well, we, it was real cold, but um, it, the there was no snow, so we were lucky in that way. Really? But, yeah, but but you know, but yeah, yeah. But the weather was bad enough in other places. Like, I my um, my flight to California was canceled um, on Christmas Day, and so that kind of uh, upended my my plans for um, for this week because um, yeah. there weren't any other flights available um, to get out of here. So anyway, I'm here in New York for now. Yeah, I've been uh, reading and listening to the news about uh, Buffalo, New York. I mean, it looks... Oh, Buffalo is terrible. A lot of people were killed and by the storm, and it's really it's really awful, and it's not letting up. There's, apparently, there's more snow coming, but that's yeah. many hours. From, that's, that's like six, you know, eight hours away from here. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's terrible. And yeah. how is Philadelphia there, Brian? Yeah, it, you know, it was extremely cold. Um, the last five days, you know, so much so you couldn't even be outside. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, this weather sure has changed, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. We don't know what to expect starting next, you know, even next year. And that's right around the corner. But we're going to get right into this juicy story, gentlemen. I've been uh, really interested in this book, Filthy Rich Lawyers. David, you were on right. my last uh, show. So let, let me let me explain it. Is um, initially, I thought I had a great story to tell, and I 
uh, hooked up with David because he wrote a book for a, a guy who lives in my neighborhood. So I contacted David with a good story to tell. And initially we were doing it as a memoir. And because I'm not a celebrity, no one wants to read my memoir. So in order to do the memoir proposal, we had to do two live chapters. So I came back to David. I said, hey, listen, let's create it as a novel, made-up story based on something. And I think we have something. And that's really what we did. That's it in a nutshell. Wow. Yeah, because... Yeah, I enjoyed David on on my on the last interview that we had together. We had a really great conversation, and when he told me about the book "Filthy Rich Lawyers," that was very intriguing and interesting. You know, to hear about these old filthy rich lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yes, and David, tell me, tell us what inspired you to team up with Brian. Well, like you said, we were working on a memoir that reflected his experience in class action lawsuits going back, um, well, a decade or more when, uh, when he was a younger man and he was on his, you know, kind of rise and, you know, ambitious, you know, uh, venture into that whole world of law. And he mm-hmm. got in over his head um, early on one day at a federal courthouse in Dallas, which is where Filthy Rich Lawyers book one, The Education of Ryan Coleman began. So Ryan Coleman, the main character, who is very loosely based on on Brian, and I stress loosely based, so Brian's real life <laughs> wife doesn't get nervous. Um, it 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 tracks Ryan Coleman's experience, getting basically in the vernacular of the book, getting his ass handed to him by the federal judge, and from there he meets some very very high powered lawyers, the guys who really end up benefiting the most historically from all of these class action suits. It's always the lawyers and the companies that they're either representing or going after. All the companies and the lawyers usually come out of these things great, but the people, the average folks on the street who are affected, if they're lucky, they end up with a penny or two on the dollar, um, and sometimes not even that much. So anyway, the story just kind of takes off from there, and then we just went free form. It wasn't about trying to stay true to really what happened, for example, with Halliburton, uh, you know, that whole, you know, military defense company that that the former vice president, Dick Cheney, um, was the CEO of. Um, we just sort of uh, kind of just took off from there, and I, I created this character, Dick Dickey, in the book, who is kind of a parody of Dick Cheney. Um, but, you know, if you think about somebody who grew up with the name Dick Dickey and the amount of bullying he experienced as a child, it's no wonder that he turned into a mean bastard as an adult, um, to say the least. I mean, a mean bastard would be easy. This guy was, you know, da- dangerous. Um, and, and, and as many men are, when they have too much money um, and too much power, um, they become highly dangerous. Uh, we, I think we all know that. So right. this, this story is, is really, um, you know, getting into the weeds on that and, 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 and trying to have, have a lot of fun with it at the same time. Yeah. Brian, tell me a little about your passion and focus. And are you an, uh, uh, an author who writes 
more, you know, have other books that's well, out? I, I mean, so this is uh, was my first novel, and I, I think um, that, you know, I was lucky to get the publisher. And I, I tell people, because they say to me, uh, professional people in the interviews, it's like, Brian, you had your first novel published. That's, like, unheard of. Well, it's 100% due to writing it with David Tabatsky. That's how I was able to get the book published. And uh, we, I have a two-book deal with Speaking Volumes, the publisher. David and I turned in book two on October 14th, and they're going to release book two in April 23. So, you know, I don't know where it goes from there. Uh, <laughs> right? So I know I'm going to be asking you guys um, some probably some repeated questions are in, in a different way, but who came up with the title, Filthy Rich Lawyers? Oh, basically, I, you know, I would tell you, I, I had a, another title for um, the memoir, and I was talking to a friend, and he was like, Brian, you, you need more of a title. And even David said, yeah, you need more of a, a title. And there was a movie um, a few years ago called Crazy Rich Asians. And yeah, I like that movie. I used that, and I came up with Filthy Rich Lawyers for the memoir. The publisher loved the title. Everyone loves the title. I mean, it's definitely... It has some appeal to it. Yeah. Did you watch that movie, Crazy Rich Asians? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, that's something else, huh? And that is how they are too. Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. No, no, that was a great movie. Really good. It really was. Well, yeah, really well done. Good. Yeah. That's my one of well, my favorite. All, all my friends who read the book unanimously. Mm-hmm. They all say, Brian, it's such a fun read, you know, and it's an easy read. It definitely flows. It's simple to read, and it's funny. It's comical, and we did a good job as far as presenting the satire. Yeah. Are you both acquaintances with lawyers who are filthy rich? Well, I uh, certainly am for I, my Brian, practice. Uh you know, uh, but we went to different extremes uh, because it was a satire. And funny enough uh, is, so when David and I were the one lawyer who takes his hundreds of millions and starts a hedge fund and earns billions, he was buying a NFL franchise. And when I signed the agreement with Speaking Volumes, they wanted me to indemnify them. And I, I didn't think that the NFL wants anything to do with filthy rich lawyers. And uh, we changed it to the AFL. But at the time, we wanted to go large. So in 18, the Carolina Panthers were purchased for $2.3 billion. And David and I picked a number of $4.8 billion. And maybe four months ago, the Denver Broncos were sold for $4.6 billion, and it hit the news today that the Washington Commodores, that Dan Schneider has an offer for $7.8 billion. So, 
truth be told, we went too low. Well, the the irony is that the the NFL has made a lot of lawyers filthy rich, um, right. and it's essentially run by filthy rich lawyers, um, and 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 the people who who own them. Um, and it's, I don't know about the Denver Broncos though. With, with the kind of season they've had, their value might be dropping pretty fast. And as for um, you know Dan Snyder. Um, I think just the word filthy, we could stop right there because you could fill in whatever blanks. As long as the word associated with him is filthy, you'd be pretty accurate. Right. Huh? That is true. He's a that filthy, he's, a, he's just one filthy human being on, on, on pretty much all levels. Um, yeah, that's just, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to satirize somebody who's that despicable. It's not even any fun because they're, they're just, a venal human being. <laughs> yeah. He's bad news. He and his wife. Bad, bad, bad. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> we don't have to go off into that. that right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I, I still got some juicy questions cause I'm, I'm totally intrigued. So tell me, uh, first, uh, David, in your opinion, what sets a filthy rich lawyer from other high power lawyers? Or or are or are they on the same status? Well, you know, one could say that they the that the roots of the tree are the same because it's the system. And the system anybody practicing law in the year twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three, is a product of what the system is today. They didn't create the system. But they chose to go to law school and enter into the field of law and become part of that system. So if that's one tree, you see that there's a lot of different branches. Some, some people choose to go into law that's really more of a social service, um, and, and they're, they're, doing, they're doing a lot of stuff to try and make the world a better place. And then you have others who the branches go, and they're not trying to make the world a better place. They're just trying to make their, their, their bank accounts bigger at, at no matter what. And so, and then you've got some that don't even consider any of that. The only moral code they have um, are how many zeros come after, you know, like like you know that that level of income. And so, I think they're all part of the same tree. They're all part of the same system because that's that's the judicial system. And it's not just the lawyers that create it and make it into something that we can either admire or we can detest or somewhere in between. Um, it's the judges, it's the whole court setup, it's the bail and bond system, it's the police departments and how they end up arresting people, it's the FBI, it's the Justice Department, it's all the levels of on states and, and, and cities. It's, it's all a big, you know, the judicial system in general is what creates these opportunities. Um, and so when you combine that with, you know, capitalists who have no moral code, then right. things go things can go south pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> and and Brian, what is your opinion? And I have to admit, you know, I, I'm planning on uh, being rich. I'm, I'm manifesting right now. <laughs> and I have promised myself because you know we all go through these challenges and obstacles. But I do, and me myself, I want a high powered lawyer. And I know that says a lot, but that's my that's one of my goals. Where do I start to look? Well, first of all, I would have to say that 
it, this book is really a satire. And I, I, you know, you asked the question to David, you know, how you would differentiate between really wealthy lawyers and filthy rich. I think it's just some of the lawyers that I've dealt with in the securities class action practice, they've made hundreds of millions of dollars. They right. really have. And I, I've dealt with their firms, the lawyers, they're extremely philanthropic. Maybe they have to be when you have that much money to be philanthropic. I don't know. But across the board, they're all self-righteous, and they think they're doing a great benefit as far as the money and the lawsuits filed against the companies for the corporate fraud. But truth is, they're getting a windfall for what they do. Yeah, you're right about that. That you are right about. So the book, Filthy Rich Lawyers, you guys stated that <clears throat> it is an education by Ryan Coleman. Tell me how did that come about and so who is we, Ryan? Basically, book one is this. We, we came with a title um, because it was a two-book um, series. And the first portion of the book is Ryan is in Dallas and he gets um, I just really ripped into by the judge as he was attempting to BS the court which is truthfully a, a real story that happened to me and then all of his trials and tribulations of what he goes through and at the end of it he has all these moral dilemmas, and he starts questioning what he's doing, what he's involved. So it really is, you know, his education. And that's how we came up with the title for what the experience, what he's learning, and what he learned and what he was dealt with all along the way. Yeah. One of your readers, David, had commented The story is about a narcissistic new attorney who impresses other lawyers by pretending to be ignorant, misrepresenting his payment in court, which would never fly in real life. (laughs) Is this fiction or real life experiences? Well, I I have no idea who the person is who wrote that, but they... They may just not know very much about class action. A lot of people think they know lawyers because they watch Law and Order. Um, and so they feel like, well, I know what it all the legal system is. I watch, I watch it every week. Um, and so there's, there's probably a fraction of truth to that. Just like, you know, you watch any, you know, show on television based loosely on, on, on real life. But I'm sure that um, it's very different. Um, and, and so, you know, people make their comments, um, based on a limited amount of actual education and exposure to the subject matter. So really it's hard to account for any of that, but I think that in satire, it's really important to kind of keep that baseline where something is based in truth. Otherwise, I mean, if you want to go into surrealism, which, which there are moments in the book where there, there is a certain sense of, like, it's for, cer- certainly with the sense of humor, um, there are certain moments that are surreal, 
but that's also reflective of real life. <laughs> a lot of moments too that it's kind of surreal. We go, oh my God, is this really happening? Um, and so you, you know, you're playing on that line that, you know, that kind of, that, that thin, razor thin line between what's real and what's art. And does life reflect art or does art reflect life or is it a two way mirror? Um, and so, and, and all of those answers are yes. Um, it can be all of those things at any given time, I think. Um, and so, and it depends on which scene of the book or which character arc that you're talking about. For example, one of the lawyers, there's, um, most of the people who are behaving badly in this book are men, which kind of reflects society in general. Most of the bad behavior um, comes from men, not certainly not all of it, but most of it. That's historically very accurate. Um, but in this case, there's one woman who is a player, and she ends up getting into a lot of corrupt things and gets herself in even above and beyond where she can bail herself out, even with all the power and resources and money she has. She gets in too deep, and it has a very bad and tragic ending. I'm sure that this reflects real life. There have been plenty of people who are high and mighty and powerful who get in too deep, who lose their moral compass, or maybe didn't even have one to begin with, and they end up in jail, or they end up committing suicide, or they end up, you know, with some bad, terrible, tragic thing essentially ends their life. And there is there is one storyline in Filthy Rich Lawyers that does follow this. So um, that's not really satirical to me. That's, that's just echoing what really does happen um, in life. Right. That's true. Yeah. Brian, Brian, from the comments also that I read, someone said that for the most part, the characters were interesting which i can see i can you know just visualize that and it seemed that the whole book was building up to something but that something never happened and the book ending ended why is that well so what david and i decided to do was we ended the book in a cliffhanger and you know a lot of my friends like that and a lot of my friends didn't like that. Honestly, it would be a perfect ending of season one on any cable network. The way the story ends, it, it ends abruptly with a cliffhanger. And my friends have told me they wanted to get through the book to find out what happened to this kid. Because right. at the end of the story, he's doing violating every moral compass code that his parents instilled in him and questioning what is he doing and then we ended it as a cliffhanger i think what some people fail to realize when they're reading maybe they just see when they open the book and they look at the cover and they see filthy rich lawyers they don't read 
that it says book one, The Education of Ryan Coleman, which would imply, (laughs) usually usually when when something is listed as book one, the implication is pretty clear that there's a book two coming, let alone maybe a three or four, but certainly a book two. (laughs) So so if they read in that context, they're going to go, okay, book one is over, it's going to continue in book two, as opposed to having it all tied up neatly in a ribbon, then why would there be a book two? And in that case, then why would this be called book one? But, you know, I, I, I don't want to judge uh, people's um, intellectual tools when they approach reading a book, but I think it's kind of clear on the cover. It says book one. Okay, yeah. That makes I, sense. I, could, I, I mean, really, I mean, I'm saying this, like, I'm sounding serious, but I'm actually being playful with it. I mean, come on, duh. If it's book one, then obviously <laughs> we're not going to tell you everything what happens in book two. Then otherwise yeah. the cover would say book one and book two. Absolutely. Well, you know, when you're reading a great novel and it's very interesting and um, it, it has a lot of suspense and things like that, you know, you just want more. So sometimes people just overlook that, like you just said. So, <laughs> No, that's real nice. I mean, that's nice. I love that people want more. That's always good. You want to always leave people wanting more as opposed to them when they get to page 113 and they go, oh, I read enough. I don't even want to read the next 100 pages. That's not a good thing. So, yeah, rather have them, re- you know, w- wanting more. But um, I don't even know what to say when somebody criticizes something that it didn't end the way they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe they wanted to end up to be a filthy rich lawyer, too. But we're selling <laughs> we're, we're selling books. We're not pe- we're not giving people, you know, hedge fund investments. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I would like to report that. So David and I, we turned in the manuscript for book two on October 14th. I had eight people read it. One of the eight was a lawyer. All eight unanimously enjoyed book two more so than the first book. Okay. So it is a happy ending, basically. Okay. Okay. And Brian, what makes the book fascinating and fun? Well, I, I, I think um, it, it's kind of pulling the curtains back a little bit of giving the public some access to the class action field. But that, not much of the law is in the book, just the story as far as how this kid, how he evolves and the situation he's going through. And David and I, he has a um, real troubled marriage. And we purposely did that to kind of make it comical as far as uh, he, he and his wife are they're not really getting along. And I, I think it's not necessarily the law, but just what I'm saying is I think I pull the curtains back and it gives people exposure to an area that's really never been written on. The securities class action field hasn't really been covered. And then it, the story evolves and what happens to this kid, Ryan Coleman. Right, right. And David, what did you learn when you wrote the book? What did you learn? Did you learn anything from reading, from writing this book? Well, for me, you know, um, it, I don't know about learning. I mean, there's always stuff in, in, in the craft. And a lot of times 
a lot of times the learning comes in the rewriting and editing process. The, the pure storytelling, that comes in the first draft, just throwing it out there and making sure that it all works. It's a bit of a Rubik's Cube sometimes when there's mysteries and things that you can't, you can't give, it, give too much stuff away in the early chapters that have to develop. So there's, there's, there's always a new learning curve in how to make that work with each you know, narrative in a novel, no matter what the subject matter is. Um, and, uh, you know, not giving stuff, you know, uh, stuff away or things have to be consistent. And you're in the middle of writing chapter 25, for example, and then you go, oh, wait a minute, did I set this up right in chapter five or six or seven? And you have to go back. And you, like I said, it's kind of a Rubik's Cube. Things, things one, one action creates a, rea- a reaction, which creates five other reactions. So you have to always track those. Um, and it, there's, there's the learning, you know, how to give it the right kind of pace to make it well-readable so that the storytelling is, is working and carrying a reader. Um, and then also how, how the humor is constructed, whether yeah. there's jokes, there, whether there's a particular line or exchange of dialogue that can elicit a laugh or a smile, but then... How does it build over the course of of the whole book? So it's almost like if you look at how a stand-up comedian creates material and has a joke in the first minute, but then there's a comeback on it in the seventh minute, and then 22 minutes later, there's another comeback when you think people have forgotten. Maybe people have, have forgotten about it, but then you, you revisit it and bring it back. Um, then it has another kind of double or triple whammy to it. And so there's a similar track in how a book is constructed. So there isn't a perfect formula for it, and there shouldn't be, because although some writers fall into that trap, and you want to not do that, because then the book feels formulaic. I mean, it's solid, it can be well-crafted, but if it feels formulaic, it's sort of like, been there, done that, or why do I really need to... There's no surprises. So that's the other thing, is to try and figure out the elements of surprise. How do I create these? but not have them be just for the sake of surprise. You can always do that. You can throw a car accident into any chapter, and it'll be a surprise. Wow, I didn't see that car coming. But, you know, after a you know, you can't, you can't do that too many times. It's like, then, you know, it's just one, one, you know, one car accident after another. That's, that's not good either. So that's, that's the learning curve that's, that's always there. And all, in this case, setting up for book two. So there's sort of clues dropped in book one or there's hints of this, or things start to develop, and then you leave them in suspense. Not good for that one reader. Sorry about that. But for everybody else, let's say, <laughs> going, oh, my God, I can't, oh, I have to wait till April for the second book? Oh, shit, I don't want to do that. So that's kind of good. That's a nice problem, people wanting uh, to wait. You know, if people had to wait until this year for the next, you know, Black Panther. Um, and so it's nice when people you know, have to wait. It's like if you go out on a date and you really love being with that person, you go, I can't wait for the second date. Um, that's, that's kind of the same buzz that you want to create. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah it's, it, it's, it, 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 there's definitely uh, that give and take between a, a write, the writer and the reader. There, there should be, you know, in a way, there is that, di- that unspoken, unknown dialogue and almost like a flirtation. There is that little dance back and forth. Or there should be that feeling. You want to have that feeling created. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is true. And Brian, what surprised you the most about the book? Um, my honest answer yeah. is going to be selling the book. But I didn't realize what was involved, and people told me, and I think um, that's kind of been the biggest surprise. But one thing I, I do want to mention, and I think David would agree with this, so, so we, we were halfway through the first book, and I had given the first 20 chapters of a couple of my friends to read it, and one of the friends comes back and he, he suggests that we change the sex of the, one of the lead lawyers. We make him a her. And we did that, uh, so the character Coley was initially a male, but we changed him to a female, and it switched the whole dynamic about, you know, switching it. And, and I have two uh, daughters of my own, and I want them to see that they could be successful in a male-dominated field. And it, yeah, it, it but really Brian, except, except that it doesn't. There's no happy ending for that woman, so I'm not sure she's not a role model. For your no, no, that's true. She does not end up her. But it was a, a major change that we made in far as making a him a her. Okay. And what journey do you want your readers to go on throughout the books? Well, I think it's perfectly set up where. Coleman, who he, the first few chapters, he comes, he goes to Dallas from Philadelphia. He's in Philly, and he, like me, graduated Temple Law School, and it was an important thing in my life. My father died when I was a young age. He was a young age. So I wanted Coleman to have that same thing, and we did that, and that's what where he's loosely based on me, but... The journey of after Dallas, he meets with the one lawyer in New York City, and then he meets with other lawyers in Miami, and then he goes to New York City to meet the uh, main lawyer who developed all the riches with hedge funds, who's buying the professional football team. So it, it, it's like a journey. It's like a process. And one thing that the character's name is Hollis. His Christmas party is at the Grand Canyon. So he rents out the Grand Canyon and has a Christmas party at the Grand Canyon. Okay. Okay. I, I could see that. Okay. That's great. That is great. And who would you guys consider to be the ideal reader for the book? Who are the ideal readers? That's a good question. I think there's a cross-section of people. I think this could be a really fun book, for example, for people at various stages of law school. This could be real fun for them to, to read. It's like, really, what am I getting into here? What's all my hard work going to lead to? Or it's just, an, it's cause in a way, it's a total escape from the, the realities of, of what that, you know, what that, uh, what that path is that they're on. I think lawyers in general... And, and anyone who works in a law firm, whether they're a clerk or a 
or a paralegal or a secretary or the janitor. I mean, anybody connected with the legal system, whether it's through a law firm, all the people who work in courthouses, all the people who are, you know, uh, in any, any way related to the legal system, which is millions of people in various professions, I think they could all, they could all um, enjoy, the, enjoy the book um, for any number of reasons, whether they see it as a cautionary tale or they just see it as pure escapist entertainment. I mean, at the end of the day, with a book like this, it's really about the quality of the storytelling and and the readability. And, and that's, you know, that's it's not that complicated. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> so I know, uh, you know, I have this question because I have written my first book. I am interested in writing the next chapter about what is happening now, especially it's, you know, from the name of the book, a journey of a sapphire and what I'm doing now, which I mean, I have totally um, just prospered, you know, from a couple of years ago to where I'm at right now. So my question to you is what five things should I as a writer consider when I'm writing my next chapter? Cause every time I pick up a pen and I'm ready to write because I have so much to set, to say, but I get this, I get stuck. Well, that's a good question. Those are always good questions. And I think every writer faces these that, you know, in varying ways, you know, you, it, it, everyone has a different, you know, vocabulary and how they express it. But um, I think a fundamental thing is for you to ask yourself, you can only ask yourself this question is why are you writing it? Um, yeah. And there's no right or wrong answers. That's the first thing. So I think that a lot of times we have to take ourselves off the hook mm-hmm. about our own self-judgment. Just say, why, why are you writing it? And it could be a completely, what some would say, selfish reason. But that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> you're, the only, you're the first and last person on the planet that you need to take care of. So how will writing this book take good care of you? Right? Okay, that's yes. How... Who are you trying? Who are you trying to reach? Are you? Is it really something like sometimes you know when we write, even as children, when we write in diaries and stuff like that, and little you know private things, mm-hmm. we're doing it for ourselves, and we don't want people to read it, right? And and you know it's sort of like to have those little diaries with those little locks on them, or you know as soon as somebody enters the room, you know you, you see somebody shove their diary under the pillow because they don't want them right. to to see it and those are intensely private things and that's fine but in this case if you are putting if you do want to put your book out into the world why do you want to do that and who are you trying to who are you trying to reach right and and then what is your promise to the reader it, it not that the promise is literally announced through that lens but i think it's an important mindset to think what's my promise to the reader my reader is going to pay money, whatever it is, could be $3, it could be $30. It doesn't matter what the price is. That's a different discussion. But if the reader's going to pay money, what am I promising them? And and will I deliver on my promise? Now, that, there's a lot of different shades of gray on that, but I think that those are questions that are important to ask. It doesn't mean that you're going to have perfect answers. 
because, you know, that's just reflective of life. Everything doesn't get wrapped up into a perfect package. Um, but, but asking the question and through the process of grappling with trying to find the answer, even if you don't come to the conclusive one, doesn't matter that you have to try so you have a better understanding of why you're even doing the writing. Makes sense. Thank you very much. Oh, you're so, welcome. <laughs> so, Brian, what opportunities are you seeing that has been rewarding since writing the book Filthy Rich Lawyers, in your opinion? Well, so for me, I, there really hasn't been, you know, the opportunities. I've had a couple uh, conversations with writers, journalists, that it, it was good you know, for me, for an opportunity, um, I, I think at, at a certain point I would like personally to go speak ab- about it, the book and or the process. But I, I just would be remiss if I don't say this to, to all the listeners. If anyone is interested in our book, all they have to do is go to Amazon and type in Filthy Rich Lawyers, and it comes up. We also have a website, Filthy Rich Lawyers, and they could, you know, it's simple to order the book uh, from Amazon. So, I have a question for Brian. I, I haven't asked him in all this time, okay. um, but I just wanted, has this, has the book, had made, has the book had any effect on your sex life with your wife? <laughs> Good question. Huh? <laughs> so the the question is, what is the question? <laughs> See, you're very you're being a lawyer already. You're avoiding my question, and you're turning it into something else. Um, has has the publication of this book had any effect on your sex life? And it, if so, what is that effect? No, so it it, it hasn't. I think. Um, and, and David, you never met my wife, and and um, and, and you know, I I think uh, it's easy for her to disassociate, you know, the Ryan Coleman with you know Brian Felboy's me, because what happens is, and and David, you know, often you joke about this. Oh, I'd like to meet your wife, see what she says, and then and then. Uh, there's an incident. Basically, he is thrown into, he has these escorts that are ever-present in his life as a result of the people he's dealing with. And he makes it a point not to get involved uh, with the escorts or doing anything for well, wait, we, we should explain why these escorts are there. The escorts are, are important players in the book and characters because Randy Hollis, who's this billionaire plus, who is the motor behind a lot of eventually what happens, um, and, and the, 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 with the primary relationship with, between Randy and Ryan, um, R- Randy Hollis has trouble with relationships in general. He doesn't trust that he can be involved in a serious relationship with a woman because she might just want to be with him for his money. So he's very suspect of that. And he has his own inferiority kind of Napoleonic complexes as 
um, he's he's unnaturally short, and he's you know, on his own, you know, kind of a power trip, you know, after being bullied as a kid. A lot of men turn out badly um, after being bullied, um, and and uh, so in this case, he just wants to have um, paid uh, people around so that. When he, he does what he does with them, and when he doesn't need them around and he doesn't pay them, then they're not there. But some of them are also working as his chauffeurs and ha- and in various assistant roles. So they're they're very um, they're very present in the book, and they also are constantly testing. I think Randy uses the escorts to test Ryan. Ryan is a is a um, relatively young married man and. Randy's sort of testing him. Is he just going to fall for an escort and cheat on his wife? Or is he, is he someone who's faithful to his wife and he's going to resist these temptations? Or maybe they're not a temptation at all. Um, so, yeah, th- those are, those are um, pervasive. And just for the record, those are not even loosely based on um, Brian's life, unless he's been keeping secrets from me this whole time. <laughs> Have you been doing that, Brian? Right. I mean, I, I was Brian, just you better answer this to, right because your wife is listening. That, you know. Brian, get this correct. Your wife is listening. Get this answer. You only have a chance. To no, yeah, it she, she's definitely not listening, but yeah, that's well. fine. I mean, we've been together. We've been married for 26 plus years. We've been together for like, we met as sophomores in college and dated. And then I came back to Philly we were at University of Pittsburgh. I came back to Philly to go to Temple uh, Law School. She came back to Philly and got her master's in education at Penn. So we, we've been together since like the 1988. Got married in '94, but so uh, we've been together, you know, yeah, over 30 all years. Time. Yeah, you should have no issues by now. You should be. Like skateboarding around each other now. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you both this question. What was your favorite part of the book? Because the book has a lot to it, but what was your favorite so I, part you know, I, I'll say that, that simple is the, the favorite part of the book is when they come back from the party in Vegas and it's a, a date night, and that's my favorite chapter, where Hollis, he gets the world's number one escort for a date night, and we kind of, you know, exaggerate everything about that. That That is my favorite chapter in the book, um, oh. and that's what I like, and it kind of outrageous what happens. Yeah. yeah, that one was fun um, because just the idea, the concept that there's an escort who's ranked as the number one escort in the world, that's so ridiculous already. Um, that's a fun premise to throw in. Um, but what happens is she, yeah, she comes to his penthouse in, in Manhattan and uh, he's so insecure. He's paying her, I don't know, whatever, however much thousands and thousands of dollars that you pay to the number one escort in the world. I'm sure it's a lot. We don't specify the amount, um, uh, and it's not polite in that company to talk about money. <laughs> so um, you <laughs> you uh, you know that it's a lot of money. It doesn't yeah. matter to him though. It doesn't matter. He has endless amounts of money, um, and and but he has his chef 
and his assist, his main assistant, um, who coordinates all these escorts, um, they put an aphrodisiac in her food because he's saying, like, even though I'm paying her a lot of money to have sex with me, et cetera, and be romantic with me and whatever, I don't trust that even when she's the number one escort in the world, I'm not, I still don't trust that she'll find me attractive or pretend that I'm attractive, so let's put an aphrodisiac in her food. But what they don't know is that she's allergic to the aphrodisiac that they put into her cocktails. So they, she, let's just say she doesn't have the reaction that they anticipated, and we'll leave it at that. Um, just to go on, for me, one of the most fun scenes to create was the chapters that take place in Vegas but at the Grand Canyon where he basically <laughs> buys, <laughs> pays off the Department of Interior to basically rent the Grand Canyon for the first time in history, and he throws his party there. So it was kind of fun to create sort of this psychedelic um, uh, Christmas party um, in the Grand Canyon, um, and make and and just just to make that up, that was fun. Yeah. So it sounds like I mean, this book. Are you guys planning on making a movie? Are going to do a movie? We're hoping. That's we're hoping. That's it's funny. being stopped right um, now two places that are, yeah. that are you know, it, these things take months and months. They got to read it. They got to have uh, 10 other people read it. They got to go through treatments. And it's just a long, long process. So we don't know yet. Really? Wow. I didn't think that it would take that long. But yeah, you, I can, I can, I can imagine and see that because you have to get, you know, people's opinions and, and everything and see who would really, uh, like the concept and and everything that's going on with the book itself, right? So, but for mm-hmm. what I'd like to add, for what it's worth, we have the best attorney out there in the sense that he represents John Grisham and Dan Brown, and I was able to. He's the best friend of a friend of mine, and he's able to take over the case if we ever get. Hollywood interested, we have the top-notch attorney to deal with it. Oh, well, that's, now, see, that's good. That's when you did your homework. All right. Well, yeah, good luck on that. And tell me, does, you know, like when we write a book and everything, and you could write certain books, does a big ego help or hurt us as writers? That's a question for you, David. Wow. Um, well, <laughs> in, in what context? I mean, are you talking about the writing that you're doing, which sounds like a memoir? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, obviously, when anyone who, who chooses to write a memoir, um, it, it's a self-centered undertaking just by wow. nature. That doesn't mean that it's self-centered in a negative way. Sometimes we say, oh, so-and-so is so self-centered, and we mean it in a negative way. I don't mean it in that but you're centering on yourself and you're then telling whatever story it is. Yeah, of course, just by, you know, from as a psychiatrist or psychologist would say, yeah, the ego is central in there. But it's sort of like when you say an ego trip, Mm -hmm. like just break down the word trip. Like what a trip, trip can mean a lot of different things. So, it's sort of like, is the trip on a straight line? <laughs> is it curving all over the place? Does it have a whole lot of side trips to it? Is it a, is it a you know, is it, um, 
yeah, is it a bus trip, a plane trip? Uh, is it a psychedelic trip? What kind of trip is it? And then we, then you could sort of answer better what, what role the ego plays in it. Okay, good answer, good answer. So, Brian and David both, tell us about your accolades as a award-winning finalist in the humor comedy satire category in, you know, of 2022 at the American Fiction Awards. And how was how and how has this recognition changed your life? Well, I, you know, from me, from my personal standpoint, is um, David and I are going to receive the number of sales in the beginning of next month. The publisher is going to send us that, and the the publisher does it quarterly. So, you know, I. I don't really know um, in how it's going to affect my life per se. I just, I personally, I want to sell a lot of books. Right. So I mean, it's that's nice, kind it's of nice what I'm be, focused on. It's nice to be recognized by any company or any organization that, that does create awards and gives out awards. But, um, you know, you kind of take it with a grain of salt, too. Um, it, 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 it's a fleeting kind of thing. So yes, it's nice to be recognized. I don't know. You never know whether that recognition translated into how many book sales, because there's no, there's no real metric for that. No one, no one goes on Amazon and buys the book and says, and then puts a little, fills in a little survey to say they bought it because the book won this, was nominated for this prize. So we don't know. Um, So it's just, yeah, it's more of an anecdote than anything else. Um, can't really pay too much attention to it. Better to get than not, but um, I don't think it, it by itself doesn't really change any life. We're not we're talking about a relatively small thing. It's, it's not as if we just won, you know, an Oscar, um, right? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it's interesting, and you've been getting some good comments. So that's a good thing. That is really oh yeah, good absolutely, thing. absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, no, those are all welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, gentlemen, we're go, uh, headed up for time. But um, is there anything else you would like to share about what's next before we go and how someone can t- contact you again and um, about the websites and where to purchase the book? Well, they could go right. to Filthy so- Rich Lawyers. Oh, hold on, Brian. They can go to FilthyRichLawyers.com which Brian mentioned before. And if they want to write to Brian or me, they can, they can contact us through the website. Um, and the easiest place to buy the book is on Amazon. As Brian said, just filthy rich lawyers, search for that. It'll pop right up or uh, lots of other, um, online platforms. If you don't want to use Amazon, um, that's fine. And if, if you go to your bookstore and it's not there, they can order it for you. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty straight ahead in, in that regard. Yeah. And what were you going to say, Brian? Uh, No, uh, David just covered it. That's fine. Oh, okay. Well, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure having you on my show. And I do look forward to chatting further in the future. And thank you again. And good luck on your endeavors. Thanks. Thanks Thanks so much for having us. And good luck with your book. Yeah. Well, listeners, I have reached my destination. I am award-winning author of the new book, 
a journey of a sapphire. I hope to inspire others who are on their journey towards success to never give up on your dreams and how to recognize behavioral problems. You can purchase my book by visiting journeyofasapphire.com, also available on Amazon and Kindle Fire. As always, I leave you with this quote and do have a blessed day. You, you don't too. learn Thank to you. walk Happy New Year. rules. You learn by doing and falling over and over. Richard Branson. Good luck, everyone. Good luck. Cheers. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank Happy you. New Year to you, too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to All Roads 65 Max Radio with Pamela Henderson. Join us every other week on Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on BBS Radio Station One. And please visit allroads65max.org and become a volunteer or sponsor and be the change you want to see in this world. With your help, we can make a difference in our society and uplift those who so desperately need our help. Thank you for tuning in.